Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. I'm your host for today, Andrew Leahy, a tax and technology attorney from New Jersey. In today's episode, we have Apple tweaking its watch to wriggle out of a ban, Bayer hit with massive Monsanto verdict, final DEI law school class most diverse on record, and column Tuesday, which will necessitate my explaining pillar two of the OECD global minimum tax rules. Let's savor the flavor of every day in a non-presidential election year we have left and read today's legal news. Today marks a significant date in legal history with the anniversary of the Sino-British Joint Declaration signed on December 19th, 1984. This historic agreement between the United Kingdom and China heralded a major geopolitical shift as it outlined the terms for transferring sovereignty of Hong Kong to China in 1997. This treaty was not just a transfer of power, it was a unique blend of diplomacy and legal ingenuity. The declaration was a testament to complex international negotiations, balancing the interests and concerns of both the UK and China. It crafted a one-country, two-systems framework, ensuring that Hong Kong would maintain its capitalist economy and democratic freedoms for at least 50 years post-transition. This framework was unprecedented in international law, symbolizing a delicate balance between sovereignty and local autonomy. The treaty's significance extends beyond its immediate impact on Hong Kong. It set a new standard for international treaties dealing with sovereignty and administrative control, reflecting the evolving nature of global diplomatic relations. Legal scholars and political analysts have since studied the declaration for its innovative approach to resolving international disputes. In retrospect, the handover of Hong Kong under this treaty has had far-reaching consequences affecting not just the region, but also international relations and discussions about sovereignty and autonomy. As we reflect on this day, the long-term implications and effectiveness of the one-country, two-systems principle continue to be a subject of global interest and debate. The Sino-British Joint Declaration remains a pivotal point in legal and political history, illustrating the complexities of international law and diplomacy. Apple Inc. is urgently modifying its smartwatch software to avoid a looming U.S. ban on its products, potentially impacting its $17 billion business. This initiative involves altering algorithms related to blood oxygen level measurement, a feature claimed by Massimo Corp. to infringe on its patents. The engineering challenge is unprecedented for Apple, especially given the timing around Christmas and the significant market at stake in the U.S. The ban, scheduled for December 25th unless overturned by the White House, has resulted from a decision by the International Trade Commission, or ITC. Apple's response includes software updates and exploring other technical and legal avenues. The company has begun adjusting retail strategies, notably altering promotional materials to exclude the Series 9 and Ultra 2 models, which are directly affected by the ban. Apple stock experienced minimal fluctuation following the news, while Massimo's shares saw an increase. Apple is hopeful that software revisions will suffice to address the issue, though Massimo insists on a hardware change. The dispute centers primarily on hardware patents, challenging Apple's approach to software-based resolution. The import restriction imposed by the ITC complicates Apple's situation as its smartwatches are assembled overseas. Resolving the dispute solely with software modifications might be difficult considering the breadth of Massimo's patents. Any hardware changes, however, would necessitate a lengthy process for production, shipping, and regulatory approval, potentially taking months. The blood oxygen feature central to the dispute was introduced in the Apple Watch Series 6 in 2020 and is key for monitoring health, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic. This functionality is also present in later models whose sales could be halted by the ban. Notably, though, third-party retailers may continue selling the affected models. Apple smartwatches have become a significant revenue stream, with sales rising from $9.1 billion to $16.9 billion over five years. These products not only contribute financially, but also play a crucial role in keeping users within the Apple ecosystem. The White House's decision on a possible veto remains uncertain, with considerations complicated by the fact that both Apple and Massimo are U.S.-based companies. The situation reflects the complexity of patent disputes and the impact of regulatory decisions on major tech companies. 
Bayer AG was ordered to pay $857 million in damages to former students and parent volunteers at Sky Valley Education Center in Washington State. This verdict comes after the exposure to polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs, in the school's lighting system was deemed to be unsafe, leading to brain damage and other health issues. This case is the eighth such decision in the state, bringing total damages awarded in similar cases to over $1.5 billion. Bayer, which acquired Monsanto in 2018, plans to appeal the verdict and challenges the claims of unsafe PCB levels, while also grappling with legal issues related to its Roundup weed killer and other Monsanto-inherited liabilities. The latest enrollment data for U.S. law schools shows stability after two volatile years, with a slight decline in first-year Juris Doctor students compared to 2022. This fall, there were 37,886 new law students, a modest decrease from 38,000 the previous year. Despite the overall decline, racial diversity among new law students reached a historic high, with 40% of the new class being students of color. This marks the third consecutive year of record-setting diversity in law school enrollments. The increase in diversity comes just before the U.S. Supreme Court's ban on affirmative action in college admissions, which will impact future admission cycles. The ban represents a significant change, as this year's class is the last admitted under the affirmative action policies. The Law School Admission Council notes the importance of continuing efforts to promote access, equity, and fairness in the legal profession, especially in light of the Supreme Court's ruling. Despite the ruling, early data shows a 4% increase in new law school applicants, with non-white applicants constituting a slightly higher percentage of the applicant pool compared to last year. This indicates that the ruling has not deterred diverse candidates from pursuing legal education. Okay, now for my column. First, you need to know what Pillar 2 is. Pillar 2, part of the two-pillar solution to address tax challenges from digitalization, was introduced on December 20th, 2021 by 137 OECD or G20 member jurisdictions. It aims to ensure that large multinational enterprises, let's call them MNEs, pay a minimum tax level in each jurisdiction of operation. The rules, spanning about 60 pages, serve as a template for jurisdictions to incorporate into domestic law. They encompass a 15% minimum tax rate applying to MNEs with over $750 million in euros in consolidated revenues per year. Exemptions include entities like government and nonprofit organizations. The rules calculate the effective tax rate per jurisdiction and require payment of any top-up tax to meet that minimum rate of 15%. In other words, in oversimplified terms, a tax haven that taxes an MNE at less than 15%, let's say 10%, potentially leaves on the table an additional 5% in taxes, which can be collected by other jurisdictions that that MNE does business with. Pillar 2's global minimum tax thus blunts the efficacy of a tax haven. In my column this week, I discuss the implications of Pillar 2 on MNEs, focusing on the treatment of tax credits. It highlights a potential loophole in the distinction between refundable and non-refundable tax credits under Pillar 2 rules. By way of definition, refundable tax credits can exceed the amount of taxes a taxpayer owes, resulting in a refund, actually cash in hand. Non-refundable tax credits, on the other hand, can only reduce the tax bill to zero and do not result in a refund if they exceed the amount owed. In my column, I suggest that refundable tax credits treated as income rather than a reduction in taxes paid might enable state-backed tax avoidance. I thus argue for a broader approach to evaluating what I'm calling state fiscal concessions to multinationals emphasizing the need for a comprehensive policy that considers all forms of state support, not just tax credits, in the context of global minimum tax compliance. And on that riveting note, I thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you look for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all the topics are in the show notes. Reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. And if you have a moment and can leave a rating or review on your podcast player, we'd sure appreciate it. If you know someone that might be interested in a story we cover, consider sending them the episode. 
Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever you get your finely crafted podcasts. If you haven't checked out the website in a while, give it a look. There are complete transcripts and resources for each episode and its corresponding segments, as well as an opportunity to receive new episodes in email newsletter form. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And until then, remember, mid-December with its crisp air and promise of holidays is a time when the heart is full of joy and the world sparkles with the anticipation of celebration and cakes and pies.